Hello, and welcome to the Changing Directions Filmmaker Podcast Series, presented by 206.com. Changing Directions is a podcast interview series focused on diverse and emerging filmmakers who are pushing the boundaries of what's possible for women and people of color while creating amazing films. I am your host, Mark Morin, and this is a special one-year anniversary edition of the podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who is listening, whether you have been here from the start or are tuning in for the very first time. For this episode, we are here to talk about See You Then, a movie that recently world premiered at South by Southwest and is also an official selection of CamFest, which is taking place right in the middle of AAPI Heritage Month. So joining me for this conversation is director Mari Walker and also Lynn Chen, who is one of the stars of the movie. Mari, Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Hi, so glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for being here. Now, Mari, See You Then is your first feature film as a director, and as I mentioned, the movie had its world premiere at South by Southwest. The movie has also been in several film festivals since then, and now here we are during CamFest as well. So what has this festival experience been like for you so far? Oh, it's been absolutely wonderful. It's been, it's been so different than so many of the other festival experiences that we've had because of the pandemic and because everything's digital and online only. But at the same time, I've been able to watch way more movies at festivals than I ever would in person. And it's also been really like uh, wonderful watching the film community of this group of filmmakers really grow online. And I think we've all really connected through like Instagram and social media and just have really tried to support each other. And I think that's that's just really exciting. And it's just great to have the film out into the world. I mean, my God, you know, like even that alone over the last year felt like a, a question mark because we just didn't know where the world was going to be at this point. Right. No, absolutely. No, that's one thing I wanted to ask you about is in making the film and editing the film and going over it, you know it so intimately. But now, you know, over the last couple months, other people out there in the world are watching it. Is that a, a strange feeling or how does that feel to you once oh, yeah. you release it out there in the world? It feels like sending your kid off to college. <laughs> and I just go out and do stuff, don't do anything crazy. And hopefully everything will be okay. And hopefully people will like you, I, I think because I like you, I love you, and I think you're amazing. And, and so it's like this place that's so interesting and exciting. And, and I feel like that's always like the greatest thing about film is you're just able to give it out to the world. And then it's for everybody else to decide what it is and what matters to them and what they connect with. But it's also been so weird not watching the movie with audiences, like ever. <laughs> it's so bizarre. I think I had we had one in-person screening with our producer, Mia Shulman, and then that was it. And that was the last in-person screening I really had. So basically you're sitting at home knowing that people out there in the world are watching and going, I wonder what they're what they're doing, what they're saying, how they're reacting. Oh, so yeah, that's gotta be an interesting, interesting way to debut a movie. Absolutely. Oh, it's it's absolutely surreal. <laughs> but I suppose maybe in some ways it's sort of like how some of the bigger films are like the secret kind of films come out, you know, that are like right. that are larger. You know, Vanishing Angle and our production company that uh, worked with us on it. Uh, the whole thing is very much about like the test process of film mm. and like going through and getting, you know, seven or eight audiences of all different ages and groups to come in to watch your film and like talk about it and see what they see out of it. And you could kind of prepare yourself for the questions that people might have or look for flags, you know, and that sort of thing. But without those, it's a lot of just kind of going down to basic personal instincts. And I think some of that is really just only built out of time. And the one thing that I had during the pandemic uh, that I was fortunate to have was just time because everything shut down and I was like, well, what, what's going to happen? And, and so I, I would take like a few days off of the edit every once in a while and to really try to gain that perspective that hopefully others could give us in normal circumstance where I would be working sort of full time nonstop, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. That's great insight. Thank you. Now, Lynn. 
before I ask you the next question, I have to say thank you. One year ago, you were my first guest when I debuted the podcast, and now here you are for the one-year anniversary episode. So thank you for being such an important part of my journey as a podcast host. It's such an honor. Thank you. <laughs> now, last year, you world premiered your first feature film as a director, I Will Make You Mine, also at South by Southwest. So with 2020 being what it was, I feel like that was a million years ago and we live in a completely different world now from when we spoke last. So I'm interested to hear about your experience coming back to South by Southwest with Mari after your own premiere and festival run. I mean, yes, this year has feels like it was way longer than it has been. And I feel like I've evolved into a completely different person as I was a year ago. It's so strange because so much is different and yet so much is exactly the same. Um, and so that sort of makes coming back full circle with another movie that I care so deeply about um, to South by Southwest, which is a festival I've been at now, I feel like five times. It just feels really, I just feel so grateful for what is going right because we really have seen everything that can go wrong so you know a lot of this year has been about just embracing the good things and this is a very good thing oh, that's amazing thank you now mari back to you see you then to me, it feels like a very personal story for you, with one of the characters being a, a transgendered woman who is clearly in the movie dealing with a lot both internally and externally. Everything you put into the character really gets exposed as the story unravels, and I feel like that's really where the strength of the movie itself is. So what does it mean for you, not just as a filmmaker, but as a person, as a human being, to put such a fully realized and nuanced transgender character on screen? Fulfilling, you know, I think. Certainly, Chris, as a representation of who I am now, I think, you know, if I was younger and, and, and this sort of representation existed, I would connect with it, but I think I would still be of a younger mind where I wouldn't necessarily understand, like, the nuances of the characters. But I do think that that representation, um, as, as I think we've, we've all said and people in both communities that I've, I live in, you know, it's, it's seeing that representation on screen, particularly when you're younger, means so much. And to be able to have the opportunity to create something that somebody could see or even somebody my age or older could see and, and be affected by emotionally or inspired by, I think is is just a tremendous gift. And it's it's rare. And unfortunately for people like us, it's, it's rarer than it should be. It, that needs to change, you know? So when did you first think of this story? Like, where did it first come from? I, I, <laughs> Ever since I was in high school, I had always wanted to make a film. And then I kept on writing all these scripts that were like, you know, the sequel to Batman. And I don't know why, but I was just absolutely obsessed. And I was like, well, I got to do these things. I, every single script I would write was bigger. And then it would get slightly, you know, the next script would get slightly smaller and the next script slightly smaller. And I kept on looking for something that I felt like I could actually make. And we had done a short for Vanishing Angle called Swim that I was really proud of. We had gone through the festival run, but we couldn't really gain a lot of traction to get one of the other features that I've been writing for a number of years off the ground because the budget was still a mil, like a mil five, and it just is too much for an independent filmmaker, much less one who's trans and biracial. So then it would behoove me to like write something that'd be a chamber piece between two characters. I felt like, and I still feel like I need to grow a lot as a writer, but I felt like my weaknesses were dialogue. And so I felt like, okay, if I really spent a lot of time working on like what dialogue means to me and, and working with Kristen on it, that I could really sort of just gain a lot of experience and a lot of directing experience, because I think it's like fine enough to make something that's flashy, 
you know, like a, a really cool horror movie or something as your first film. But a lot of times I think I'll, then it becomes more of a technical exercise versus an exercise of working with, with actors and working on actually what story and character are about. And then, you know, I was going through a lot at the time and I was trying to come to terms with transitioning a little bit later in life than a lot of people are these days. And what if being a parent meant things to me still, um, you know, what my priorities were. And a lot of that stuff was just sort of rolling around in my head. And I think to a degree, Kristen Uno, my co-writer as well, and she was living with me at the time. So I just sort of coerced her into, I just sort of gave her the script and I was like, you're writing the next draft with me. And she's like, I am. And I was like, yeah, you are. So just do it. I don't know. And she just acquiesced. And then it was sort of like this art therapy for us because we were able to work out all these feelings and, and emotions through these characters. And then they started to come to life, which is just the most thrilling thing about writing, you know, when like suddenly like you're writing something and, and you don't even feel like you're writing it. And like this like line will just appear of like who the, who the character is. I think it might've been actually Naomi when I first felt that, where it was like something that we had written and she just said it in this way that I was like, wow, that's a really Naomi way to say that. <laughs> and then it was like, cool. And I'm like, you know, yeah. And then and then we just started running with it. And we 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 spent a lot of time like working through the process of, of writing this dialogue. And so Kristen and I would read the script back and forth to each other. And I hate, I'm just not an actor. You know, I always joke that trans people spend sort of their whole lives being actors and then we just we retire and we're like, listen, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. It's too exhausting and hard. And so when we were reading it, I, I just, I hate hearing the sound of my own voice. So it just be like this torturous thing. I, uh, and you know, she'd be like, no, you have, we have to read it because it's the only way we can understand the cadence. I was like, you're right. <laughs> and then it was something like, it was like right at the last draft that we worked on. And we got to the fight at the end, this big sort of conflict scene um, that occurs. And, and I started going off book. I was playing Chris and I started going off book and I started like pulling new things from like the material that I hadn't, oh, wow. we didn't even have in there. And I was kind of just yelling at Kristen. And then she just sort of, we stopped. And then she was like, I think it's ready. I was like, she's like, I think if you got to that place where you became the character, then somebody else who's way more trained and experienced and way more intelligent than you are will be able to take this material and actually run with it. So I was wow. like, oh, thank God, you know. No, that's amazing. So it really was a very personal experience for you. Thank you for that insight. That's great. Yeah. Now, Lynn, when you first came into this project, what was your initial reaction to the script and what were your first thoughts on being a part of this film? So I was introduced to the film via my agent and my manager who just sent me the script and an audition opportunity. And so I remember reading the script and immediately feeling like, oh, this is really special. And I, I hate when I feel that way because it usually means I'm not going to end up getting the part. <laughs> but, but what ended up happening was I looked at the appointment and Mark, you'll appreciate this because when I looked at the apartment, the, the appointment um, and it said that it was at Vanishing Angle, I thought to myself, why does Vanishing Angle sound so familiar to me? Why does this address feel so familiar to me? And then when I showed up at the appointment at Vanishing Angle, I was like, I filmed two days of I will make you mine here. Oh, Vanishing no way. Angle kind enough to let us film there. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, so the scene in I Will Make You Mine where I go to visit my friend Amy and we go and smoke outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A YouTube video, that's at Vanishing Angle. Wow. So, and the audition took place in that studio. So 
I immediately was like, okay, this is, she's also a first time female filmmaker who's Asian, like, she'll get it. Like, like we can talk to each other as colleagues. I don't have to be like, please give me this part. Like, you know, all of that desperation that I think I usually come in stinking yeah. of. I just immediately relaxed and was like, all right, let's play. Cause I've played here before. And yeah, I, I mean, I, she made me go through it, you know. <laughs> Mari, Mari made me work for it. She didn't just hand it to me, even though like afterwards I was like, I'm your Naomi, right? <laughs> she still made me wait quite a bit to the point where I was filming another movie actually, and I was doing night shoots also in the desert. And when, that's when I found out I got it. Oh. Uh, yeah, when, when, we, when I was filming it and we were having the callback, I was just so nervous that I wasn't gonna have time to like, because there's so much dialogue that I wasn't gonna have time to memorize the new scenes and that like, what if I was doing night shoots and like she had the callback and what if I should have and it just wasn't like my best. She needed to know like I was gonna give it my all. So I wrote Mari this letter because I was just like, I can't let this opportunity slip through my hands. Like it may just be another audition, you know, of like hundreds that I do in my career, but if I don't like let her know how much this means to me, then she's, she'll never know. I, I wrote her the letter, not only to let her know how much the project meant to me, but also to be like, please let's make sure like that when it happens, it's during a time where I can make it. And that like during, and, and so you know that like, this is not me and my best. I'm gonna give you even, even better than what you're getting right now. I think it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would definitely agree with that. So it sounds like there was a meant to be type scenario happening there with the whole vanishing angle. And uh, yeah, that's that's a really cool story. Thank you. Now, Lynn, over the course of making the film, what is something that you can say you learned from Mari as a filmmaker? I mean, you know, what's funny is I feel like even though I will make you mine, was the third in a trilogy and I had so many people, I mean, obviously every film you work on is so many people working on it with you. I just felt like a, like a, like a really tightly wound stone where I was just like, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Whereas like Mari like really allowed other people to put in their two cents. I mean, I, I did eventually, I feel like, but Mari just like was there from the beginning. I had to like relax into it. It took me two film shoots because we had divided I Will Make You Mine into two different shoots to finally warm up to that. It wasn't until the second one that I was like, okay, what is, what you professionals got for me? Like, how can you help me? <laughs> Whereas like Mari from like day one was like, I want to know what you think. And that was from the rehearsal period and that was from all of it. So I really learned about the spirit of collaboration in a way that like, you don't have to like, just drive it in. Like there's there's something about being more open to things and you don't have to do it. <laughs> the other thing, I think part of me is like, I don't want to hear what you have to say because then I feel like I have to do it. And the thing with Mari, she showed me like, you don't. You can listen to what people say, but ultimately it is still, as the director, your, your film. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Now, Amari, same question for you. What did you learn from Lynn while making this movie? Oh, I think it's just so important to surround yourself with people who, who have faith in you and who could treat you like that equal. I think like that was such a huge part of what made working with, with Lynn so 
wonderful was just the the openness that you brought even into that like initial audition like that it said was such a, like a paradigm shift of how i was like viewing the whole experience of working with with actors that it just excited me because i was like okay cool like she wants to collaborate with me it's not like i'm going to and 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 opening that door in that way just like gave me that that freedom that even in that first audition process because i was so nervous and so i was like totally greener and audition processes for me are so nerve-wracking because i feel always so bad for the actors that have to come in because it's like they're working so hard and they're going through this whole process and and there is that thing where it's like this environment gets built it's like you're the gatekeeper all of a sudden and it's like this weird space to be in and and having that especially because lynn was our first audition like on that thing and i was like i mean even lynn, lynn could probably attest to this i was pretty nervous i think i had stopped i didn't yell i didn't say cut at the end of like i was just sort of like <laughs> like acting this is just fascinating you know but it was like it was that openness and that and that friendliness and then i was like okay cool like that set the temperature for how the whole process went and i was like great it's not only that i'm going to be able to collaborate with my dp who you know i went to college with or like you know uh mia or Kristen, you know being my co-writer and me being my producer and ad but i was like i could collaborate with the actors too and i can we can all do this together and i was like and that just so invigorated me through throughout the entire process and and lynn would come in and having had that experience of working on a first film and being in that director's space there are so many times when she would come in and be like listen like I wonder if this thing might, you might need an initial line here just in case, you know, and, and he'd been like, Our scripts, I don't know about that. And I was like, no, no, no. I was like, Lynn knows many things about film. And I was like, I trust your opinion. And that line stayed in the film. It's still there because you knew it. And you knew that there was like, it was missing this one little ingredient because you'd been through that process of editing before. And you'd been through that process of working with like a montage sort of sequence and how that thing was constructed and, and having that extra person on set that I knew had walked through that fire before was just incredible and I, I really want to do that in the future to work with like actors who have directed even if it's shorts because I think that there is like a different mindset construct that happens as a result of that allows for this this openness of collaboration which is just it was awesome. Oh, no, that's great. No, thank you. Now a question for both of you. What is the number one thing about making this movie, when you look back on it, that just gives you a feeling of gratitude? That it didn't rain. <laughs> <laughs> it was already so cold and we were like outside and I was like, the only thing that could really make this awful is if it just started to rain. And it didn't, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's my, that's my simple answer. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah, thank God it didn't rain. Oh my God, that would have been torture. I mean, it was so cold already. And then, of course, I made the absolute buffoonish decision to set the whole movie at night. And our producer was like, are you sure about Matt Miller? I was like, are you sure about that? And I was like, yes. And he was like, you know how hard it is to shoot overnight? I was like, I don't care. And then, like, you know, of course, I really cared. And I felt really awful for putting everybody through it. But I think, like, that one of the things that um, a friend of mine had said to me uh, that he got advice from other directors was before you premiere your film, you should write a page or two about what it means to you. And I was like, a page or two? I was like, that's, that's long. That's like an essay. I don't need that. I was like, I just need like two thoughts about what it is. And, and to me, it like, it, it's exciting to me because I was like, okay, this is the first film. I know that there's a lot of room to grow from here as a filmmaker. But, but more than that, I think like the film 
represented a special place of family that I don't know if I'll ever come to again with a film. I think that's something that's really special about first films is like so often, more often than not, it is so like pirate renegade where you're just running around with like so little resources and you're asking your friends to come on and be like art for a day, you know, they're doing this thing. And then like, you know, you know, your your friend, your roommate comes in and works on this thing and uh, and is an extra here. And, and the whole film was so surrounded by family. Um, you know, my parents were executive producers, but they were also like on set. And my cousin flew in from Boston. Like one of my close family friends who's like a second mom to me flew down and she was an extra in the film. And my college roommates were my script supervisor and my DP. And Kristen and I had known since fifth grade and we grew up together in Washington and, and we're co-writing now. And, and there was this one period where like, it was like right after like a prep rap day and it was kind of like the crew we all went out to this bar down the street from where vanished angle used to be located and i just looked around and i was just like this is like people from all aspects of my life like people who had known me since i was 13 to like people who knew me in college people who have only known me post transition people who would see me transitioning and and i was just like how just the magic of film and, and collaboration and seeing all these people together, I just felt like this is just a family experience that, you know, like I, I don't know is replicable. And, and I think that's just, it just felt so meaningful to me in that way. It just felt special. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Now, Mari, is there a movie that you saw and then you said, I want to make movies because of this? Uh, I don't know if there was a, hmm, that's a good question. That's a, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think about when I really first started thinking about what directing is. Because I knew what stories were. Like, I, you know, over the years, like, you know, Jurassic Park, I'd watch it, I'd be like, I want to be a paleontologist. And then I was like, I don't like dirt. You know, I was like, <laughs> like I want to be a marine biologist. And I was like, I don't like the ocean. It's scary. You know, and like, so these experiences that I would do. And then I suddenly started to realize, and I was like, wait a second. It's like, I don't really like doing that action, but I like telling a story or thinking about that action. And, and that's sort of how it started to evolve. I think, you know, Spielberg, you know, it was a lot of those that were like where I really started understanding, like reading articles and understanding the sort of the fundamentals of film. And I think like the one film that I would say, like I watched it and I was like, I don't know what that is, but that was like in the mood for love. And I was like a senior in high school and like I watched it upstairs in my parents' room on this like really ruddy TV. And I just was like, what? the hell did I just watch? I was like, this is just cinema in a way that I hadn't quite experienced before. And 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 the tone and the pacing and, and the way that the costumes complemented the music and, and the lighting and, and, and just the quietness, but then the undercurrent of emotion was just, it's so rampant in, in Wong Kar Wai's work in general. But in that film, um, it just sings. And I, and I think that was like, and I, I watched it. And then I literally like, went downstairs and grabbed my mom and was like, no, you just have to watch this movie. And I just forced her to watch it and like watched it back to back because I was like, I don't understand how they put this movie together. This is just insane, you know? Um, and I think that was one of the first times where I was like, God, wouldn't it be really neat to direct something? Not that I'm going to ever say that I could direct anything to the level of In the Mood for Love. But it was like that thing where I was like, wow, like, you know, Holy Grail sort of status. And Lord of the Rings, too, I would say. Lord of the Rings, oh, that's, big yeah, one, that's big one. Yeah, I would imagine Lord of the Rings has influenced a lot of people over the years. I know that's a that's a great example. Just a masterclass in filmmaking in general. Now, Lynn, kind of the same question. Do you have a favorite movie or do you have a, a favorite director that, that's influenced you? I mean, I feel like part of the reason why Mari's script spoke to me so much was because a movie that was very 
influential for me was Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise series. When I first saw that, it just, I mean, I had already been a fan of his from uh, Days and Confused. And so I was such a fan of the way that he just showed usually over the period of one evening, how the opposite of Lord of the Rings and the opposite <laughs> of like all these other films where things are blowing up and everything like that there's a simplicity. There was something about watching people just be themselves and um, talk in a way that I was familiar with rather than like quick witty banter that to me made me feel seen. Because for me, I, I'm, I'm quite an introvert and so I spend a lot of time just like by myself thinking about how maybe me drinking this glass of water is like so mundane and boring, but like I think it's kind of beautiful. And maybe if you turn a camera on, it would be beautiful. And so that's something I love about his earlier work. For me, I, I thought I would be in one of these you know, types of movies. And, and I feel like that's the gift Mari gave me was like being able to be in one of these kinds of films where people are having this conversation over the period of one evening, just a two-hander. Um, but I also think it influenced me subconsciously when I ended up taking over the trilogy for I Will Make You Mine. So um, yeah, that movie has been so influential for me. And actually I have a little story when I was in Paris and I was memorizing lines for See You Then. And I was waiting to hear if I got into South by Southwest for I Will Make You Mine. Richard Linklater and Ethan Hawke were in Paris at the same time. They were going to be doing something at a museum showing uh, the Before Sunrise trilogy. And I was like, we gotta go, we gotta go. But it was like at 11 p.m. And I was like, we can't go. <laughs> I'll be in bed. So um, what ended up happening was my husband and I did our own little Before Sunrise uh, or Before Midnight or whichever one was the second one. <laughs> we, we did our own like tour of all, their, all the places that they went. And we ended up going, walking into one of the churches. Sorry, my dog just barked. We walked into a church and at the same exact time, it said very clearly, no talking in the church. And when we walked into the church, I heard this American just start talking, talking, talking. And I was like, who is that annoying American? And I turned and it was Ethan Hawke. And I was like, this is a very good sign. This is a really good sign. I don't know what to sign up. I don't know if it's a sign of like Austin, Texas. I don't know if it's a sign that I'm going to get like, see you then. I don't know what it is, but this is a great sign. We're going to follow Ethan Hawke around this church now. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I remember watching the Before Trilogy, I guess is what we generally call it, for the first time after they had all come out. So I took about a three day stretch and just sat down and watched each of them over that three or four days. And by the time the last one was done, I was just emotionally wrecked. Like I couldn't even move for probably like what felt like an hour, but it was probably still like five minutes. I just sat there and I, I couldn't do anything. I was just blown away by the film. So I appreciate that you would use that as an example because I think it, it's probably touched a lot of people in the same way. So no, that, that's also a great story. Thank you for telling that. Well, I also wanted to add that Ethan Hawke actually presented See You Then with, uh, which was, what was your best narrative feature? Best narrative feature, yeah, at Sun Valley. It was, it was the most surreal thing. And so we saw, I saw them in like the, the trailer for like, they were like, the award ceremonies coming up. And I was like, Ethan Hawke. And I was like, there's no way. There's no way that this is going to happen. There's no universe 
that we live in. We live in like the Pennywise universe now because of 2020. <laughs> so I was like, there's no way. And then it happened. And I was just like, wow, this is just the most amazingly for but that's so amazing too that that also like connects with the story of Paris that's too. It's so I mean. I'm just realizing it right now. That's what it all means. I was predicting <laughs> the future. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so good. That is amazing. The universe really does work in interesting ways, doesn't it? That, that's incredible. The month of May, as we talked about, is AAPI Heritage Month, which I think is especially important right now, given all of the you know, hate and violence towards Asian people that we've been seeing. Now, you are both storytellers, and you've taken that opportunity to show Asian American characters who are authentic and human versus the stereotypes and caricatures that you know, we're used to seeing from Hollywood. You know, do you feel a responsibility in what type of movies you make and how you make them? Yeah, I I think really it's it's funny, um, and I, I've, I've sort of talked about this before, but there's a... Um, I think transitioning itself was really the thing that opened me up to realizing how much and how slanted my characters were towards just white characters. You know, even in some of the scripts that I've written pre-transition, like, I just didn't factor in my own identity really into any of the characters. And, and, and after transitioning, I think it was sort of like this thing where it was like, because I had the privilege of being biracial and the privilege of, of passing as white for so long that I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about my own experiences as an Asian American and as an Asian American identity within my work. But then after transitioning, I sort of went back through my old material and I was like, wow, like all these people that I had thought about casting in these roles were just white folks that I liked and things they are talented. There's no question about that. But like, I was like, but that's not representative of who I am. That's not fully representative of who I am. That's not fully representative of the people around me. But I just had fallen into the into the system, into this like lapse of judgment. Um, and, and transitioning sort of shook me out of that. And and I think since working on See You Then and working on, on some of the other shorts that I had done previously, I, I really have put it more to the front in my own mind of like not only like obviously casting Asian Americans and, and queer folks, AAPI folks and queer folks, but but also behind the camera too. Because I think that can have just as much of a change as it can in front of the camera. Because you need people who could provide perspective and, and knowledge in those spaces that can have those voices that are behind the scenes that you know are talking to the director. And then hopefully those people will go on either to support or make films themselves about their communities. And I think that stuff is just so essential. And, and I think the other thing about it too, even this month, I, I every every day I'm trying to do like post a movie a day on my Instagram account just to like keep people, I don't know, I just feel like not enough people are watching movies and it's kind of crazy because we're all stuck at home. Well, not really anymore, but we're, we're getting out of the place of being stuck at home and we should be watching more stuff. And, and it reminded me of how few Asian AAPI narratives there are. And I was like, wow, that's really troubling. And that really needs to change. And, you know, we're we're at that place, or I could speak for myself, I'm at that place where I do feel like it is a level of responsibility for me to to tell those stories, but just to just to have characters that are parts of these communities in, in my films, to be represented, to be seen, and, and really in, in a lot of ways to sort of reflect the voices and, and, and stories and, and the characters that I want to tell, you know? And there's a lot, there's too many. Somebody else has to help me make these things. No, that's very true. No, Lynn, I'll ask you the same question. And also, I feel like I Will Make You Mine was a great example of what representation can be because the characters were so authentic and real. So I guess the same question about you as far as the responsibility as a filmmaker. 
Yeah, I mean, when I was writing I Will Make You Mine and I was thinking about having four female characters, and there were more than that, there were, ended up being six that I can think of off the top of my head that were Asian American women. You know, I was, I was thinking, you know, every single time I'm in a waiting room with these actresses and we're all going in for the same part and she's usually a martial artist or a sex worker and not that there's anything wrong with those things but and it's gotten a lot better I will say you know especially in the last 10 years but the fact that like it felt like we're all fighting for the same part and that there was only kind of one story being told and one type and we're all such different people with different things to offer the world and you know I I just felt like I wanted to write characters that I wanted to play that I hadn't seen that weren't really like crazy by any means. They're they're people that everyone knows. It's just they haven't had the chance to be represented really fully on screen or at the same time. Because if there's one of us, then you can't have another one and have them not be related. You know, I wanted it to just really reflect my world and, and what my world feels like and the people in my world. And so that was important to me. I don't know if I will get the opportunity to keep doing that. I, I sure hope I will, but I will say that because, you know, indie film is, it's hard to make money. It's hard to raise money for it. And we are not at the point where audiences and investors are ready to keep seeing films where there's more than one Asian American woman and she's not kicking ass in a black spandex outfit. And that's just the truth right now. And so I will keep fighting, but it's a hard ass battle and I've been fighting it for decades. So that's why I'm really grateful for filmmakers like Mari and I'm going to keep doing my best. But like Mari said, it is about who's behind the camera and not just like who's making the decisions, but also who's behind the camera so that when I, as an actor, am uncomfortable saying something that's written in the script, I have someone who has my back right there because it, it makes a huge difference when you look out and you don't just see white men staring at you being like, I want to go to lunch. Right. No. no, that's very, very true. Thank you for putting it in those terms. And what you're saying makes me think back to our conversation last year, which, as we mentioned, the topic was diversity in film, or really the lack of it, you know, as you're touching on. Now, I learned recently that you have a role in, in one of the short films that's part of Launchpad, an upcoming Disney Plus series that features six filmmakers from underrepresented backgrounds. Can you talk about that at all? Or maybe just not without revealing anything, but can yeah, you, I don't know. Can you yeah, talk I'm about like, that experience? I don't even remember what I saw either, but I, I will say that I have a very small part in one of the shorts. It's called The Little Princess. We shot it during the pandemic, and even though I was like, oh, I really don't want to be on the set during the pandemic, how do you say no to Disney? Right. Like, I can't. I can't. Um, <laughs> I'm really, really proud of what we did and, and really excited to see the final project because it was a gorgeous script and I really think it's going to change people's lives in a big way. 
Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I've, I've looked into that a little bit. And yeah, I'm, I'm so looking forward to seeing all of those films. Just, just like you said, just because of what it means for filmmakers, what it means for representation. And like you said, how do you, how do you say no to Disney to have that type of opportunity to put out there to a Disney audience, which is basically the world. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what your, as you say, small part in that is going to be. Because really, I mean, it's going to be huge. I mean, it's it may be a, a small role, but it's going to make a huge difference for people. So I'm glad you're able to be a part of that. Now, on the other side of the coin, when we talk about diversity and representation, and either of you or both of you can answer, where do you see opportunity, right? We just talked about Disney, but where do you see opportunity and what gives you hope for the film industry moving forward? I think that there's hope through things like crowd investment. I think it's the, the, the concept of not waiting for a seat at the table, but making your own table, I think is one of those things that I think we're just all gonna have to do to like move forward. But I also think it's like a really exciting time. I think even during the pandemic, the amount of diverse filmmaking that I saw in the festival runs that, that I was like following at the time, but also even just in wide release and the fact that like last year was supposed to be a banner year for female directors and big box office blockbuster kind of budgeted films. I think that the future has hope, but I also think that in times when there's less cultural stress happening, Hollywood gets lazier. Mm. And if they don't have a, a villain to fight against, they drop the ball sometimes. So I am worried that in like the next three years, there'll be this like kind of oh, like, oh, you know, but you know, well, we've given all these things and we have all these films now and all this stuff. And it's like, no, we just got to keep the fight happening. Like Lynn said, you know, we have to keep the fight going. But I do think that like even like I started watching Underground Railroad last night and I, yeah, I don't even know. That movie, that show is just insane. But for something like that to come out now just gives me hope. And it inspired me. I was like, oh my God, like there's like this new ceiling to hit now because it's like Barry Jenkins is a genius and then like somehow made something that seems like it's better than Moonlight. I don't even understand that. Somehow it happened. And it's like, okay, cool. The bar has been raised. And I was like, now there's just more space to grow and, and work within. But it also just requires everybody to work hard. And I think it requires more allyship. I mean, even like with the AAPI community, even this year with all the, the violence that's happening, um, obviously it doesn't necessarily translate to the film industry, but I think that it is important to like, we're, we're seeing this pushback, I think, because now we're starting to like re-enter into the cultural populace even with like Parasite winning and like Crazy Rich Asians and, and a lot of shows now and all this like we're, we're getting more exposure now which is great but then I think that's why we're facing a lot of hatred and I think but then the only way forward is just to keep on making more stuff and getting our voices more out there regardless of whatever industry that you're in and be heard um, but that's not easy. Right no I totally get that. Now Lynn your thoughts on that? Yeah I think it's interesting what Mari saying there's this feeling that definitely things are changing and have been changing and you can feel the shift and I think a big part of it is feeling like the gatekeepers are not only like being taken down a bit but we're also realizing they're not they're not so scary they're not so scary when like you know you're on zoom with them in their kitchen <laughs> you know, like this has really brought us all to this same, this kind of like evened us all out a little bit. And that is to say, like, it is easy to get lazy or burnt out or, you know, like this whole fight 
is not going to end anytime soon. Right. And I think that I have been used to staying quiet when I know things aren't okay because like you don't want to rock the boat and you don't want to like risk your future. But you know, I'm also coming to an age where I'm just sort of like, I'm gonna say something now. When am I gonna say something? And what kind of world do I want to live in? So I think that it's an exciting time, but we do have to take care of not only each other, but ourselves. And that looks different from day to day. Um, I think mental health is like something that's just so important that we need to really just accept. <laughs> like it's like, it's as much of a part of, of the hustle is the stopping of the hustle and just like chilling out and then you know, getting back to it, which is the cultural shift that I think um, is happening right now, forced upon us by this pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see what happens as we start to re-enter life again, because I I don't know what to predict, but it'll be another shift and then there'll be another shift after that and there'll be another shift after that. You know what I'm done doing? I'm done predicting the future. <laughs> all I can do is, all I can do is the best I can right now. No, that's so true. And it's very true what both of you have said about that topic is, yes, there's been a lot of change. Yes, a lot of things have happened in the last year, but we really don't know what's going to happen next. And, you know, I think the important thing is that we keep, you know, and I say we in a very general sense, but just as a population, we keep moving in this direction and creating things and watching things and, you know, just in all aspects of life, not just in the movie world and the filmmaking sense. But no, I really appreciate your both of your thoughts on that topic. It's very, very good insight. Thank you. Now, bringing it back to the movie, See You Then, is there anything else that either of you would like to add in that we haven't talked about before we wrap up the interview? I want to talk about Puya. Right, yes, yes, thank you. Puya is. Puya. <laughs> we love her so much. She's just an incredible actress, such an incredible person to act opposite of. So giving, we've just like really bonded those few weeks that we got to spend together. Though that's some of my favorite parts about filmmaking, because that doesn't happen with every film. This may be one of the most intimate films I've done because it was just me and Puya, pretty much. And that just requires an immense amount of trust that not only she gave to me, but you know, I was able to give to her. And that feels amazing too. You know, usually like, as an actor, like you're like, my coverage. <laughs> and I think that the more practice you have uh, being on a set where you're like, no, I gotta give back. You just realize, oh, there's another side to this that's just so lovely about filmmaking and, and about storytelling. And, and Puya was a great partner in, in crime for that. And she also always tried to keep the energy energy going on set. She'd always play, uh, she'd always Rick Rollis and start playing Rick Astley in the middle of the day. Oh, no. <laughs> and we're like, by the end of the show, we're like, yeah. <laughs> she'd be like, no, but it was Rick Rowling. And she's just such a, a fun presence and just so, and so giving, as Lynn said. And, 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 and so just, she, she was so insightful, particularly with the, with the character that was just so interesting. And she was able to sort of diagnose the thing without us really even talking about it. And, and she just, has that emotional conduitness that's really magical and really fun to watch because when she goes into that zone, it's like, whew. like especially at the at the end, it was like, it was pretty. But yeah, she's good. 
Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for bringing her up. Now, Mari, thank you for being here. And Lynn, thank you for coming back. I really appreciate both of you taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, it was an honor. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And congratulations on putting See You Then out there. And all the best to you in the future. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Changing Directions podcast series featuring filmmakers Mari Walker and Lynn Chen. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review on iTunes, and share on social media. Any way you can support the podcast is very much appreciated. You can find every podcast episode and all of my movie reviews, including my review of See You Then on 206.com. Thank you for listening to the Changing Directions podcast series presented by 206.com.